0: This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the assessment of a patient in the backcountry. Uh, the assessment of a patient in the backcountry is similar in some senses as it is in the, in the front country or like in an urban situation. However, there's a a number of differences. Uh, The biggest one being is you're usually far away from any kind of help, and so you're going to have to take care of the patient on your own. This uh, particular chapter and podcast, they do not prepare you to be a first responder in any sense of the word. But rather, these will help you to just know the basic skills that you're going to need if you come across someone who's injured. The other thing you should be aware of is that... uh, in assessing a patient in the backcountry and in the urban setting, too. But uh, particularly in the backcountry, there's a lot of mnemonics that you need to uh, remember. The principles behind them are what are important, but the mnemonics will help you to remember in what order to do them and make sure you don't miss any important steps. What happens uh, is uh, you'll get very anxious and nervous when you see somebody injured, particularly if it's someone you love or someone you know. And most often when you're in the backcountry, you're with friends and family. Uh, so you need to uh, kind of really grab a hold of these mnemonics and know what they mean. One thing that we don't want to teach is a see this and do that kind of a, a course or a lecture, but understand uh, why we're doing what we're doing uh, with uh, the uh, mnemonics. Being able to assess a patient who is injured or sick becomes one of the most important uh, issues in all of medicine. Even if in an urban setting, the proper assessment of a patient is critical. What is curious is the initial steps in the assessment of a patient in the back country are generally quite intuitive. But when we get into an emergency situation, particularly if friends or family are involved, we tend to ignore those and uh, move forward in such a way as to put uh, ourselves in danger. By that... It's, we mean that if you see someone you don't know, or uh, if you see someone uh, who has fallen off a cliff, your sense generally is to protect yourself first. But if you see someone you love, or if you're trained to go after these people, you tend to put yourself at risk. So the very first step in the assessment of a patient in the backcountry is to protect yourself. That is really to do nothing to stop, look, and make sure that the scene is going to be safe for yourself before you enter it or do anything beyond that. There are a lot of stories in the backcountry where, say, a father will see his son fall into the river and will just dive in afterwards. Uh, it's hard to go to that father and say you shouldn't do that. Uh, but those, those many stories are replete with more than one victim because of prudence. Uh, being ignored. So in order to help people understand how to assess a patient uh, in the backcountry there are four surveys that need to be completed. The first survey deals with keeping uh, the, the rescuer safe. This is called the scene survey. The second survey is really devoted to keeping the patient or the victims alive and that is called the primary survey. That is followed by the secondary survey and finally the ongoing survey. Uh, If you look at these surveys uh, carefully, uh, they follow a series of steps, getting rid of unwanted or unneeded uh, steps uh, that will allow you to keep a patient uh, alive and then get them out of the backcountry safely uh, if they need to be taken out of the backcountry. The initial uh, step then is what is called the scene survey. What we tell people at this point is just what we talked about. Don't create a uh, second victim. The scene survey begins by telling people to use prudence. This is kind of uh, the what we talked about earlier. Somebody really doesn't have the overwhelming desire to jump in and risk their own lives for someone, generally speaking. There are a lot of uh, exceptions to this. One of our patients recently, uh, in the summer of 2019, was up in the mountains east of the University of Utah camping with his family. His uncle noticed that the fire had gone down, in fact thought it had gone out, and went over and got some gasoline and poured it on the fire. In so doing, the fire became ablaze, lit the can uh, that was in his hand on fire, which splashed on him, and he became uh, a ball of flame almost instantaneously. His nephew, who was sitting across the campfire, without any thought or thinking of any surveys, literally just jumped on him and rolled him to the ground and put the fire out. In so doing, he suffered full thickness burns on his chest and arms. The uncle's life was saved. He he had significant burning uh, all over his body, uh, superficial, partial, full thickness burns. The uncle was in the hospital for almost six months. The, uh, The nephew who jumped on him, was in the hospital for about two weeks until he had skin grafts uh, that were able to be done and continually has follow-up uh, at the time that I'm giving uh, this podcast. what The point of that is, is clearly he didn't have any thought or any, uh, uh, any other desire than to save his uncle's life. It would be difficult to go back to him and say that was a mistake. Generally speaking, if you come across a scene where someone has, say, as we said earlier, has fallen off a cliff or fallen, you really need to make sure before you go in that it's safe. That doesn't need to take much time; it can just take a second or two. But you have to just pause for a minute and make sure that it's safe. For example, someone bitten by a rattlesnake, or there's a a, a brown bear, a grizzly bear that's in the scene. Prudence would dictate that you don't go in until the rattlesnake or the or the victim is gone. But again, you have to think of the case of the, uh, the nephew who uh, jumped on his uncle. The, uh, as the uh, initial survey or the scene survey goes along, now that you feel that it's safe, a number of things go through your mind. How many victims are there? Don't think that there's just one. If you see one, there could always be more. Um, what is the mechanism of injury? What is the nature of the illness? That is called the MOI and the NOI. Those are two very important concepts, and you'll hear them all through uh, uh, rescue medicine, whether it's uh, urban or wilderness medicine. The NOI, the nature of the illness, or the MOI, the mechanism of injury, will dictate uh, significantly uh, how you care for the patient. For example, if somebody has fallen off of a 20-foot cliff, they almost certainly need to be evacuated, even if they appear to be normal, because somebody falls 20 feet, undoubtedly, or very likely, will have internal injuries that may not be visible on the outside. If somebody is walking long and just trips and falls, that won't necessarily be as obvious. Uh, and so, the nature of the illness and the mechanism of injury will then become the overriding first initial steps after you make the scene safe for yourself. The secondary survey, which follows the initial scene survey, is really designed to keep the victim alive. A lot of exercise and a lot of time needs to be spent on the primary survey, and the few minutes devoted in this podcast aren't nearly enough uh, to allow for that. The primary survey teaches us probably our uh, very first uh, mnemonic, and that is MARCH, M-A-R-C-H. A A lot of people have used A-B-C-D-E as the initial assessment of an injured or sick patient. While that is okay to use, it escapes and completely neglects a very important concept, and that is massive hemorrhage. The MARCH protocol moves M, which stands for massive hemorrhage, right to the front of the uh, assessment. If somebody is bleeding significantly, then that needs to be stopped even ahead of approaching their airway and their C-spine. We're not talking about a small wound or a, a, a little bleed. We're talking about a gouge, a gunshot, an amputation, or somebody can bleed out within seconds or minutes, and that bleed needs to be stopped. So the MARCH protocol was developed in uh, order to address this uh, significant problem. The rest of the, the protocol is pretty much the same as the ABCDE, but the MARCH protocol literally puts that up to the front. That is something you hope you never see. Somebody who is bleeding out so quickly that you need to apply a tourniquet or stop the bleeding to save their life. That would be a, an extremely uh, uh, an emergent uh, situation that would uh, be an unfortunate one to be involved in. Well, the March protocol then literally starts with M A R C H, and I'll just state them and then talk a little bit more about them. M is the massive hemorrhage. Airway is exactly what you think you had. Then immediately, if they're not bleeding to death, you move to their airway. And make sure that they're breathing and that their C-spine is stable. And those go together, uh, airway with C-spine. R then stands for respiration. And uh, the C stands for circulation. We'll get uh, more into that. That is uh, the more uh, less emergent bleeding. Uh, H uh, is the uh, high or helicopter or the hypothermia or the hyperthermia. That is the patient warm and and, uh, safe. And are you going to now start to think about evacuation, or do they stay? Let's talk then about uh, going back to M in the MARCH protocol, uh, the MARCH. We mentioned a minute ago that that stands for massive hemorrhage. This should be just a very quick assessment of the patient. And if you don't see uh, any immediate blood on the victim, that would uh, raise concern that they're bleeding to death, then you move quickly on uh, uh, to the uh, A part of the uh, assessment. The tool to stop someone from bleeding out in the backcountry is a tourniquet. While a lot of uh, history has been devoted to saying that a tourniquet is a last resort, if someone is bleeding to death, it is really becomes the first line of therapy. If the, If the bleeding is significant enough, just apply a tourniquet on them. That will be discussed later on, but a tourniquet uh, immediately applied will stop bleeding. Remember, blood cannot be replaced uh, in the backcountry. So move on to uh, the uh, A of the MARCH protocol. Airway is just exactly what you think. There is a big falsehood in uh, rescue medicine that if they're talking, their airway is clear, and that is uh, one of the most incorrect statements of all of medicine. If they are uh, talking, that literally just means that they're alive and breathing, but their airway may be uh, uh, blocked off. For example, you could have broken teeth, dentures, rocks, gravel, dirt. You could have leaves, all sorts of snow, all sorts of things in the mouth. In order to clear the airway of a victim, you really need to open up their mouth and take things out of it that might be in there. Now, it is true that if their airway is completely obstructed, maybe the tongue is raised, uh, 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 you know, l- listing on the back of the esophagus and the throat. That's another issue, but you've got to open up their mouth and look in there and take out things that could be obstructing their airway. Uh, if they're talking, all it means is that they're talking. It doesn't mean that their uh, airway is clear. So open their mouth and open the, uh, the airway. Uh, Later on, and you can read this in text, and in the text that we provided, there are two methods uh, that we want you to know to get the uh, uh, tongue off the back of the throat. And uh, Basically, one involves uh, tilting the head back, and the other uh, means pulling the head back and lifting the jaw up. Uh, We'll talk about those uh, also later. As part of the airway is the C-spine. At this point, while your head, your hands are near the head, you should make sure that the uh, the head is being held so that if they have a, a C-spine injury, that by moving their head, uh, that it won't uh, make it worse. So the second step after M for massive hemorrhage is airway with C-spine, and uh, then you can move on beyond that. The next step is called uh, the circulation, and this is uh, the the bleeding that isn't as emergent now any bleeding is bad but some bleeding uh, won't uh, cause you to bleed to death for example most all the venous bleeding you won't bleed to death you just ooze from those but if you have an arterial bleed anywhere you can but some of those aren't as significant one of our patients was a young sixteen year old kid who wanted a slice he was at a campground and wanted a slice his uh, an apple in half with one slice of a very sharp knife and he did he cut through the apple but in so doing he cut through the top of the um the skin on his hand and through the superficial and deep palmar arches so he cut through four major arteries in his hand and literally had minutes to survive what were it for his uh, father who grabbed him and uh, put a pressure dressing on his hand to stop the bleeding they were able to uh, bring him to the emergency room where he was seen uh, by our team and uh, uh, later got into uh, surgery and they repaired his hand. This case is uh, illustrative of a of sort of a borderline case. That was a massive hemorrhage that needed to be stopped with a pressure dressing and, uh, and then to be re-evaluated. So uh, how do you evaluate a bleed? Um, normally uh, in rescue medicine they talk about a blood sweep which is really important that is you look over the body and look and see uh, where bleeding may occur and you go from head to toe. This really becomes important and you have to look symmetrically on either side. You have to remove clothing, backpacks, helmets. You have to uh, sometimes remove boots and uh, ski pants or whatever in the backcountry to make sure that they're not bleeding out. One thing you can look at is their clothing to see if there's uh, bleeding out. So a blood sweep really becomes uh, very important However, that is not the only place that you can bleed is uh, from the surface of the skin into your clothes. One other place you want to uh, look at is out on the street. Sometimes victims will cut themselves, fall, and they'll bleed on the ground, and then they'll walk and move and then collapse. So you need to look around the area and make sure that there's uh, not a pool of blood somewhere that uh, uh, where they're not at, and that way that can help decide uh, uh, you know whether you're going to evacuate them and how you're going to treat them. Another place they can bleed out is uh, in their chest. If they fall and they break a rib, they can cut those delicate arteries on the inside and on the bottom side of the ribs and, uh, the, the, uh, uh, and inside the chest, and they can fill their chest up with enough blood where they become so hypotensive that they can die. The abdomen is another place. Uh, you can lacerate a liver and puncture the solid organ of the spleen, and enough uh, blood can leak out into the abdomen uh, to kill someone a growing abdomen a tenor abdomen after your mechanism of injury uh say is a fall and you have a growing abdomen then you have to be worried that they've either lacerated the liver punctured the spleen or that they're bleeding uh somewhere else uh the the solid organs are very easy to uh, uh burst by a traumatic fall these are in skiers snowboarders bikers climbers who would be falling and land on their abdomen and then sustain a uh, major uh, injury, another common place uh, where someone can bleed to death inside their body is back in their kidneys and that sounds unusual uh, that you would think that you could bleed to death back there and also it sounds unusual that you would think that the kidney area was different than the abdominal area, but it is the uh, The whole interior of the body is really quite complex, filled with different layers and pouches and uh, uh, Areas where organs are contained, the kidneys are contained back behind the abdomen in a, a, a large sac uh, is a way to think about it. They call it retroperitoneal, behind the peritoneal organs if you're not familiar with that. If the kidney is suddenly uh, smashed or cut, uh, it has a whole lot of blood in it and it can bleed out into that area. Um, one uh, way you can uh, check for that <clears throat> is to check for... Uh, uh, blood in the urine, and of course the mechan- mechanism of injury if you're injured uh, back uh, in that area. Another place that you can bleed to death, now if you can see we're going through sort of a systematic way of uh, seeing where people bleed to death. The other place it's possible to bleed to death inside the body is in the thigh. And the, uh, the thigh has a, a lot of little arteries, but it has one major artery, and that is the aorta. It comes out from inside the abdomen, right next to the femur, and if for some reason you break the femur approximately, that is close to the abdomen, it's possible to lacerate uh, the uh, femoral artery. The femoral artery can bleed so much into the thigh that it is is conceivable that it could uh, build up uh, blood in that area. That is not very common, uh, but it can happen. Finally, another place you can bleed to death is what we talked about at the start, and that is on your skin or on the street. You have to look at both. You might have a small laceration on your skin with a little blood, but it could be uh, uh, bursting out onto the uh, street. So that th- those become the five places we want people to look. And if you t- divide S into two places, that's really six, but it's chest, abdomen, renal, thigh, skin, and street. So that's CARTS. And the CARTS protocol now is a standard to uh, use to see where people uh, uh, might bleed to death. Uh, and uh, bleeding, of course, is that uh, part of the... Uh, primary survey, which is really important um, uh, in assessing uh, someone who might uh, be injured. What happens if you do think someone is bleeding to death inside their body uh, rather than on the skin of the street is that it heightens your ability to uh, evacuate them or get them out. Uh, and if you're worried about that, then you really have to go. Uh, there was a case of mine where a, a young boy had been in a four wheeler, a four wheel uh, a, a vehicle had rolled over on him and smashed his abdomen. They brought him into to uh, our emergency room uh, by ambulance, and I went out to greet the ambulance and the patient, and he was awake, but kind of confused, what we call him, and uh, his abdomen was huge and tender. That let me know that he was bleeding somewhere inside of his abdomen. I didn't even complete my exam. Uh, We were in a a smaller ER, and we called an air evacuation. Uh, He was going to need surgery, and when I got on the phone, they asked me, where he was bleeding, I said, I don't know, but his abdomen is growing, and he needs surgery. So they brought the helicopter up, and we put him in it. And as they were flying home, uh, he started to die. He crashed. And so they landed at a, a hospital midway between where we were sending him, took him straight into surgery, and saved his life by... He had actually lacerated his uh, uh, spleen and liver and uh, uh, was bleeding, death. but they saved him. So you can remember that story that a growing, painful abdomen is, in fact, uh, a place where you can be uh, bleeding uh, to death. Moving in the MARCH protocol, M-A-R-C-H, after circulation, uh, remember, uh, uh, smaller wounds are stopped easily by applying direct pressure. Uh, If the wound is not stopped by direct pressure, use a tourniquet. Uh, Those are the two methods. If it's a very bad wound, go ahead and put a tourniquet on immediately, uh, there's really no need to, to uh, loosen it as you try and evacuate these people, uh, but uh, uh, a severe skin wound uh, that is bleeding might have to, if direct pressure doesn't stop it, then uh, go ahead and use a, a, uh, a tourniquet on that. There is a lot of data that supports that. Now, uh, in an urban setting, we use tourniquets as, the, as a last resort, but in the wilderness, they tend to move towards uh, being a uh, first-time uh, use and at the top of the list. The last uh, in the MARCH protocol uh, is H, and that stands for Hike, Helicopter, or Hypothermia, and Hyperthermia. Uh, the hyper and hypothermia refers to uh, are they safe and warm and protected from the elements where they have them. In urban settings, in hospitals, We that isn't a big concern, but when you're in the back country, rain, heat, cold, ice, fire, avalanche uh, could be a problem. And so you have to protect them for those things, warm them, cool them, Get them to safety, whatever uh, is needed, um, and then the uh, other eight, part of H is hiker helicopter, and that is whether they stay in the front or uh, in the back country, or whether you evacuate them. Emergency doctors—that's the ultimate decision that they have—is whether they admit somebody to the hospital or not, because if somebody's really sick, they need to be admitted. If they're not, they get to go home. And the same thing when you're assessing someone in the back country, your ultimate decision is can they stay in the back country or do they have to be evacuated or go back uh, to safety. And uh, those are uh, the uh, big decisions. That is the primary uh, assessment of a patient, the MR. MARCH protocol with CARTS being how to assess the bleeding. And that's going to end uh, this uh, first part of Patient Assessment in the Back Country. Uh, there'll be part two uh, that you can listen to. Uh, thank you again for listening.